This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. In terms of right and wrong, humans usually see things in black or white. However, humans can view about 30 shades of gray, leaving most to realize that there are many ways of looking at a situation. Today, we will talk about supporting patients and eliminating biases affecting their care. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together, we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working in jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. The way that we see reality is significantly influenced by what is known as Aristotelian thinking. Aristotle's philosophy held that things were or were not, is or is not. This opposition filters how we perceive others. We tend to think of something by including its opposite, right or wrong, healthy or sick, gay or straight. Today, we meet a nurse practitioner that focuses on helping others find a positive mental health image, including overcoming prejudices, beliefs you may disagree with, and supporting lifestyles you do not understand. Let's get started. Today, we have a very special guest, Devin Jennings. He is one of the amazing nurses in the Utah community specializing in general psychopharmacology and LGBT affirming therapy. Devin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So Devin, why don't we go ahead and talk about um, your current role right now, and we can just kind of start from there. It's my understanding you're at the University of Utah. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I just recently graduated um, from the University of Utah's graduate program. Um, So I just got my doctorate in nursing practice, and I specialize in psychiatric and mental health care. Oh, wow. And so I currently work as a a psychiatric and mental health nurse practitioner with the U and one of their outpatients. Uh, behavioral health locations. Oh, that's great. And something that's super important and I think is developing a lot of awareness in our society right now, which is really important. What got you interested in psychiatric and mental health related care? That's a great question. When I was at, so I was at BYU from 2012 to 2016, where I got my undergraduate degree. Mm -hmm. And while I was going through clinical placements, um, going through my bachelor's program at BYU, I was trying to find something that felt like it connected with me. And, you know, we did emergency room care and ICU care and med surge and labor and delivery. And I didn't find anything that really connected with me and connected with what I found as kind of the core of my relationship with nursing, which was the importance of developing a relationship with people. And the moment I walked into our psych class, um, and the moment I had an opportunity to start doing psych clinicals um, with the University Neuropsychiatric Institution was the moment I found what I felt like was my home in nursing. Um, and for me, nursing has always been rooted in a belief in the importance of holding space for people's emotions and holding space for the difficulty of the human experience. And developing a healing relationship between a nurse and a patient to help them, you know, address uh, mental health related concerns. And so walking into psych was, for me, just like walking into home. (laughs) It it felt like exactly what I was looking for in nursing. 
And that really set the stage for then what has become my career in psychiatric and mental health care. Ah, fascinating. Let me ask you a little more about that, because I think a lot of students, they go through clinicals and it can be really hard to know what is my home? What do I actually enjoy? Maybe it's me and I'm a little bit bipolar, but I feel like lots of students don't really know what they should focus on. So how did you feel? Tell us about how that felt when you went into the psychiatric ward and, and you knew that that was yeah. like your home. What did that look like for you? Yeah, you know, I there's this concept that I've really appreciated in psych. Um, I call it values decision-making. At the core of values decision-making is first and foremost recognizing the values that are at the core of who we are as a person. And there's many different kinds of values that people might resonate with. Um, for me, um, I've always found strength in values like vulnerability um, and honesty and truth and wisdom. Uh, those are some of the values that are at the core of who I am. And as I was going through different areas of nursing, I was looking for, well, which of these areas best embodies and connects with these core values that I have? Um, and for me, vulnerability looks like honest connecting with other people in a shared space of healing. And there's many places where someone might find that. And I didn't find that anywhere else other than psych. Mm. And so when I walked into an inpatient psych experience and I had the opportunity to get to sit down with, with people and be able to hear their stories and hear their pain and to be able to validate them in their, in their pain, um, it, it resonated with me. I mean, it, for me, it felt like, you know, this is exactly what I've been looking for in nursing, you know, looking for a space where I could connect with people get to talk with people and hear their stories and bear witness to their stories. Um, and, and yeah, as, as I was sitting with people and hearing their stories and getting to share their experience, it put me in a unique space where I could say, you know, I think, I think there's something I can do to help you. you know, I, I feel like I have skills, I have knowledge that may be beneficial in helping you on this journey. Um, and really just felt so rewarding and so fulfilling. And so, yeah, for, for me, psych just very instantly felt like a place where my values could be utilized um, and, you know, personified to help other people. Hmm. Yeah, you sound like a very people-oriented person. I sure try. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, I'm sure that you're great at it. Just listening to the way that you talk about <laughs> these patients that are, I guess, historically maybe marginalized a little bit. I think a lot of people have expectations that these people are, are crazy and they're kind of harms society into them themselves. Is, is any of that true at all? Or what's your perspective? Most people, including myself, have this idea that a psych patient is like what you see in Hollywood, which I'm sure is not hundred percent accurate. What, what does a psych ward look like? What do the patients look like and what do you do there? Yeah. So, so I worked in an inpatient setting for about two years as a charge nurse at the University Neuropsychiatric Institution. And just recently it changed its name. So it's now the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. So those are sometimes interchangeable for, for us that knew mm -hmm. uni back in the day. Um, so I worked for two years in an inpatient psych facility and then three years in outpatient. And so it's been a, a unique experience kind of seeing both sides of, of uh, what behavioral health might look like. For certain inpatient um, an inpatient psychiatric facility is very unique. Um, it, I mean, in reality, you are seeing the raw pain of psych and mental health care. 
you're you're seeing people in in their most vulnerable spaces. You know, you're seeing people at the lowest of lows. Um, you know, people who have you know suicidal ideation. You know, people who have recently attempted suicide. Um, people who have relapsed um, and are experiencing significant worsening of depression symptoms or anxiety symptoms. Um, patients who have bipolar disorder and you know have currently gone into a manic state um, and haven't slept in a week. You know, or people who are acutely psychotic and having you know auditory and visual hallucinations and are severely paranoid. Um, I mean, you're really seeing psych at its most extreme. And so for certain, it's it's a unique experience. And Hollywood has tried to put a light on what it might look like. And in many circumstances, um, they've gotten it horribly wrong. <laughs> I imagine. In many circumstances, it's it's uh, you know, it, it's it's meant to look, you know, horrific and grotesque. And and I think it does a great disservice to what mental health care is meant to do and what it's meant to provide. Um I think if there if there was anything that Hollywood gets wrong most of the time, it's that psychiatric clients or clients with psychiatric disorders are violent, aggressive, and are a risk for harming society. Mm. That's just simply not true. The, the statistics consistently show that people with mental health disorders are far more likely to be victimized and to be victims of violence and abuse than they are to be perpetrators. And so really a more accurate look at what like society and, and mental health might look like um, is to recognize that people with mental health disorders are far more often victimized and, and therefore deserve the love and the support that we as a community ought to be giving them. Um, I think that answers maybe some of your question. How's that sounding? <laughs> no, no, Devin, that sounds awesome. That is, that is super true. And I like that you mentioned that, you know, it's not so much that they are the ones that hurt society, but sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes they're the victims of, um, kind of the stereotype that society paints for them. What do you think yeah. maybe, and this might be a question that's outside of your scope of practice as, as a nurse, but as a society, what can we do to address those, to change the narrative that those psych patients are dangerous to themselves or to society? What do we do about that, you think? Yeah, oh, that is that is like the question. I think that there's a lot that as a society we still need to do. Um, one example would be um, is the way that health insurance covers behavioral health care. So just to give you like an example, there is nothing that says within anyone's like health, you know health insurance policy that you can only go to the ER a certain number of times in a year if you need to go you go and you'll be taken care of you you know insurance will cover it you're fine most insurance companies have a limit to the number of days that you can receive mental health care treatment mm. so when you're inpatient your insurance might say you have 10 days that you are allowed to be in an inpatient psychiatric facility in a calendar year. Once you hit 10 days, everything else is paid for out of pocket. Wow. So you better get your stuff together within 10 days. That is horrific. And that is that that speaks to this the desperate need to address how mental health care is approached within this country. Um, I mean, that's one example, and there's other examples we could pull out, but 
I think that is one example of an egregious error in the American healthcare system. And I think it's letting down clients who suffer with mental health disorders. I do want to turn a little bit now to what nurses can do. I mean, you know, uh, not most people listening to this podcast are not going to go out and create insurance insurance premiums. But if anyone is listening, they have some work they can do, I guess. But what about nurses? What are some things that nurses that maybe are interested in psychiatric and mental health related fields or maybe even just normal any other anyone else, any other person that's studying nursing? that might be listening to this podcast, what are some things you think that they can do to help be a part of the solution to this problem? I think it's important that nurses appreciate first and foremost, that it does not matter where you practice, you are going to experience psychiatric and mental health care. It doesn't matter if you're in an ER or labor and delivery or in med surge or in ortho or in surgery, it doesn't matter where you're at. You will experience themes and elements of mental health care. And so you do not have to work in psych to interact with psychiatric and mental health care issues. And so it's important to appreciate that from a nurse's perspective, every nurse needs to have an appreciation for and an understanding of mental health care because it is going to present itself to you. And you can either be the nurse that has the tools and the skills to readily and appropriately engage with a client. Or you're going to be the nurse that brushes it off, is dismissive, you know, and, and may potentially cause greater harm than good. And so what's like a practical thing that a nurse could utilize in any situation? You do not have to be an expert in psych to be able to be the nurse who has the capacity to show love and kindness and acceptance and empathy to your patients. I think at the core of psychiatric and mental health care, And really what is also at the core of nursing is the ability for a nurse to be able to just sit and listen and to show love and compassion to another person's experience. I think if nothing else, if nurses can develop within themselves the ability to sit with someone in their experience and just show that they care and that they are with their patient, I think that right there can just do a world of good for anyone who may be experiencing any kind of, you know, either a a diagnosable psychiatric disorder or just in pain, you know, or just in distress. Um, And so I, I think that would be the key to what nurses could do is just learn to sit with people and listen and show love. I, I think as a greater community, I think the same theme applies. I think we all need to do better and I think we can do better to show greater love and support to those who have different lived experiences than ourselves. You know, being able to sit with someone and be able to say, you know, I hear you. I may not understand what you're going through, but I'm here for you. And and I'm so grateful that you shared with me your pain. And I wanna be here to support you in whatever way I can. I mean, that's a simple message. It's a simple message, it's a simple statement But if we can do more to show love and connection and empathy to others, I think that would drastically change the way that we view people with different lived experiences than ourselves. Well, I do want to ask you a little bit about um, some of the technicalities of of working with these individuals. You did mention how you, I think the way you put it is that you're 
working with people who are in yeah. raw pain. I mean, does that ever get you down? Like, how do you deal with that? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, absolutely. When you sit with someone in their pain, it will absolutely have an effect on you. It's not possible to engage with someone from a place of empathy without it affecting you in some way. And so that's a great question. You know, how, how can we sit with people in pain and bear that pain? Um, there's this concept in nursing called compassion fatigue. Um, at the core of, the, of this conversation of compassion fatigue is that as nurses, we often give so much of ourselves that at some point we just kind of start burning out and we, we feel like our empathy, you know, our, the vessel within us that contains our empathy is just completely spent. And that happens. That absolutely does happen. And so then the question is, well, what, what do we do to replenish and refill ourselves? Because it's absolutely true that if, if a nurse or as a caregiver or as someone who just loves and supports um, those with mental health issues, you know, if you do not take care of yourself, you will have nothing left to give. And so it really then comes down to the importance of recognizing when you need to stop and you need to just take care of yourself as a, as a nurse. You know, and that might mean, you know, taking a day off. <laughs> it might mean, you know, taking a deep <laughs> breath. It might mean reconnecting with the core values that are at the soul of who you are. It might mean reconnecting with loved ones. It might mean, you know, spending time outdoors in nature. It might mean going to the gym, you know, whatever that might look like for someone. Self-care as a principle of nursing is vital. Uh, being able to recognize when we have depleted our vessel of empathy and to recognize what we can then do to refill that vessel. And for each person, it's going to be different. Um, you know, whatever, you know, really fills their soul. You know, for, for me, it's being able to come home and be able to spend time with my children you know, being able to come home and be able to just sit on the couch, take a deep breath and be able to just spend time with my kids or being able to have a weekend when I can just spend with my wife or have time when I can just listen to music, you know, or time when I can just, you know, sit in my backyard and just breathe. You know, those are, those are the kind of things that for me really fill myself, you know, really fill my soul and refill my vessel. And I think that's important for nurses to be able to know what they need to do in order to reconnect with who they are and you know the core of who they are and be able to refill that vessel inside them. Yeah, I think you have, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Nurses are really good at caring for their people, but they don't always make the best patients themselves. <laughs> oh, that is so true, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So uh, let me ask you about your, your schedule a little bit. Um, I know most nurses, usually it's, you know, two days on, four days off, something like that. Um, or, you know, you have good long 12 hour shifts. Is that kind of similar in the psychiatric slash mental, mental health care world? Is that usually how you guys run your shifts? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, when I was working, when I was working as a registered nurse, um, when I was working inpatient, I worked, I would work three twelves and I, I worked graves. I worked mm. three twelves in a graveyard shift and then have four days off. So I did three on, four off. When I when I switched to outpatient, um, the schedule was a lot more flexible. And so I worked 
I uh, let's see, I think I did four tens. Um, so I, I worked my forty hour work week, but I did over four days. So I did four on and three off. Now in my work in my role as a nurse practitioner, um, I work Mondays through Thursdays um, at the clinic that I support. And then I do four hours um, working in a community clinic um, in South Salt Lake. And so um, certain psych nurses can find, I mean, yeah, different schedules that might work best for them and their unique situations. Um, I think in general, the demand for psych nursing is so high um, that it, it's not uncommon that nurses are able to create a schedule that works well for them um, while still supporting you know, the facility that they look at or, or that they're working at. Let's pause for a moment to ask you, the listener, what topic or guest would you like to hear discussed on the podcast? Give us your suggestions on our Instagram page at The College Handoff. I do want to change gears a little bit. I noticed that on your LinkedIn profile, you said that you are an LGBT care knowledge expert um, or something along those lines. Can you tell us kind of what what that looks like and what that means? So in my role as nurse practitioner, I I kind of have two specialties. My primary specialty is medication management for psychiatric disorders, um, which is really at the core of what psych mental health um, addresses as far as like a nurse practitioner is concerned. My other specialty is LGBTQ individual therapy, um, which which is a deep passion of mine. Um, so so what does that mean, right? So so LGBTQ therapy is really focused on adapting therapy modalities and skills and techniques to support LGBTQ people in moving towards goals of authenticity and acceptance. Now for certain, not every LGBTQ person who comes into therapy is going to be looking to specifically address issues surrounding their sexual orientation, gender identity. But the themes of of sexual orientation and gender identity are are a common element of many queer stories and queer voices um, when they present in therapy. So when I'm working with clients from a therapy standpoint, um, there's different ways that we we strive to reach those goals of authenticity and acceptance. And I would say there's probably three main ways that we try to move toward that. So first is having a deep compassion and respect for queer stories and queer voices. And maybe I should put in a quick little disclaimer. Some people might be a little bit like shocked when I use the word queer when I'm describing the LGBTQ community. So let me just real quickly make this comment. Historically, the term queer has been used as a derogatory term against the LGBTQ community. In more recent history, the term has been reclaimed um, and is now a term that provides an umbrella term for the totality of the LGBTQIA plus um, umbrella. And so when I use the term queer, it's an interchangeable term for the general LGBTQ community. So let me, I'll just throw that in there. So first is having compassion and respect for queer stories and queer voices. Second is having a basic appreciation for cultural competency. And what I mean by that is understanding terms, language, history, um, 
you know, d different elements and aspects of, of the queer experience and of queer culture. And then third is understanding the role that societal discrimination and minority stress have on the physiological and psychological well-being of queer people. I think those are kind of the three main um, the three main pillars that for me support what I try to accomplish when I'm providing um, LGBTQ therapy to my clients. Hmm. Well, there's definitely a lot to it's unpack <laughs> there. Maybe we can start. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds a little bit like a newer field, newer in the fact that we're actually addressing potentially an issue versus, you know, I don't think we've had people who would self-proclaim themselves as LGBTQ plus experts in this. And so I think it's great that that we, that we have people that are developing this field and these lines of thinking. Maybe we can start specifically, though, with um, with what nurses can do to um, to be helpful and, and, and less hurtful, because I think you mentioned like in your second pillar there, you have um, you're trying to educate and, and help other people understand the culture. And it's like what, for example, would, would a nurse need to know about the queer culture that would help them uh, treat patients that fall into that yeah, category? Yeah. Oh. I think first and foremost is an appreciation for that every nurse is going to come from a different background. Every nurse comes from a different background, from their own culture, from their own place in America, from their own belief systems, from their own faith upbringings. Um, and a lot of nurses will have different perspectives on, on, the, on the topic of LGBTQ care um, and the LGBTQ population as a whole. From the perspective of a nurse, you can have whatever opinion you feel like you need to have on, on any given topic. But the moment that you enter the role of a nurse, your primary responsibility is the care that you provide for your patient. And if a nurse walks into a space and enters into it with bias and prejudice and, and anger and misunderstandings and misgivings towards any community, and if that negatively impacts the care that you provide to your patient, then to be blunt, you are failing in your responsibility. If you have a bias, if you have a prejudice, if you have a particular perspective about queer people, that needs to be checked at the door and it does not have any place in the way that you then interact with a patient with a different lived experience than yourself. That is what I, that's the bare minimum of what LGBTQ care looks like is ensuring that nurses are aware of their own beliefs, biases, prejudices, whatever term we want to use, and that they check that out the door and do not allow that to influence negatively the way they interact with the patient. That is the bare minimum. So nurses at BYU though are not the bare minimum. So what do, <laughs> what do nurses at BYU, what can they do? What I would say yeah. to that is there is power in recognizing that when you're in a space where someone's lived experience is different than your own, to recognize that you are no longer the expert, but rather you are now the learner. And it's profoundly, profoundly important that you stop, you listen with real intent, you listen to your patient 
you accept and honor their lived experience and you do everything within your power to affirm them in who they are. That might look like understanding what they mean when they say that they're gay or what they mean when they say that they're bisexual or pansexual. It might mean honoring and respecting pronouns when a non-binary or transgender client tells you that their pronouns are they, them, theirs. It means doing your best to affirm your patient in who they are and how they express themselves and showing honor and respect for that part of them. I think if there's anything that a nurse can do, it's to recognize the importance of stopping, listening, honoring, and affirming your patients and where they are in their journey. I think that's really the core of it. Wow. Yeah, I like that. I think that's, I mean, even outside of the nursing realm too, those are really practical pieces of advice that we can use to help make society a little more loving and accepting of other people, their cultures. From your perspective, lots of people, and this might include myself, um, like you mentioned, everyone has their own biases. How do we get in the practice of, I think, as you put it, checking our biases at the door? What can we do to, um, to make sure that we're not bringing those in into the care that we provide? Because sometimes it can happen almost yeah. unintentionally. What can we do to, to overcome yeah. that? Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that well-meaning people do not enter into the space and overtly show hatred. I don't think that's the problem. Yes, there are those people. I hope not. But that's not the problem. I think you're exactly right. What happens when a person walks into a space and isn't even like aware that what they may be doing or saying may have a negative impact on people? That's challenging. That's challenging. It's very difficult if if you're walking into the space and you have no experience of this. Um, so let, yeah, let me provide a thought. The unexamined life is not worth living. On the flip side of that, the examined life has has profound capacity to be fulfilling. We may not readily engage in practices of like mindfulness or just being aware of what we're thinking, what we're doing, and how it affects other people. But I think it's a it's a very powerful um, it's a powerful practice to get into to spend time sitting with ourselves and asking ourselves, what am I really thinking right now? How am I really feeling? And how are those thoughts and those emotions presenting themselves through behavior? One way that someone could engage in that practice of becoming self-aware is to be able to recognize the emotions that they feel and be able to put names and words to those. Someone might walk into a room with a, with a transgender client and they might start maybe to to notice within themselves that they feel something maybe they feel confused maybe they feel uneasy maybe they feel angry i don't know maybe they feel respect maybe they feel joy if someone can stop and say what am i feeling right now what is this emotion that that's coming up in me right now and then be able to say what thoughts am i having in conjunction with that emotion and then be able to say is this helping me or is this hindering me in my capacity to be able to connect with this person if, if someone can meaningfully engage in that kind of like you know internal review and internal analysis 
I think it can be a great place to start um, to be able to consider, like, what are the biases I have that maybe I'm not even aware of? It's vitally important that we learn as just like human beings engaging with the diverse world. It's incredibly important that we learn how to be able to reflect on our lived experience and know what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and how that's influencing the way we engage with others. If we can engage in that kind of process, it will drastically change and improve the way that we engage with people from different backgrounds. So speaking of of potentially hurting people, I like how you said, you know, BYU nursing students, they can't just do the bare minimum. They have to do more than that. What are some things that, say, a BYU nursing student should be aware of that um, that would potentially hurt a patient who comes from this queer background? Um, Oh, that's a great question. I think most BYU nursing students would say that they have a deep love for humanity and a deep love for people. I think you have to love people to get into nursing. Um, I mean, I guess you can get into other aspects of nursing where you don't have to engage with people at all. And, you know, you you do you. But um, I think for, for many nurses, there's a deep love for people. This concept of love, I think, is really profound because there's this, there's, there's an issue. Let me tell you about this. There's this issue with this concept of love. And it's this idea. If I profess to love you and then I do something hurtful, is it love? You know, if I tell you, hey, I love people, but I don't like you, I don't like your lifestyle, I don't like your pronouns, and so I'm not going to honor any of that, but I do it out of quote unquote love. Is that really love? If loved expressed, is not love received? Is it love? So I I would make this argument. If nurses believe that they're acting out of love, but it is not being received by their patients as love, that that disconnect indicates that there is something wrong. Love needs to be both expressed from a place of love and has to be received as love. And if it is not, there's a disconnect that needs to be addressed. I have heard situations where nurses said, oh, I love my patients, but I don't agree with their pronouns, so I'm not going to use them. Or, well, I love my patients, but I don't agree with their lifestyle. And so I'm not going to call their, you know, their significant other, their husband, you know, or or what, what might have you. That's a problem. That's a problem. If you truly love your patient in the way that I think BYU nurses innately have, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves, if I love my patient, are my thoughts, my actions, my behaviors being received with love? Because if they're not, then is it really love? And what needs to be changed in order to make sure that it is love? That's a good point. If if I'm understanding you correctly, then I guess you could maybe say that love isn't so much the emotion or the feeling that you have for someone else, but rather how that someone else might interpret your actions. I think so. I think that's a part of it. I think it's this idea that 
you know, if you're going to engage in this concept of loving your patient and loving humanity, that I think you really need to ask yourself, if my, if my professed love is causing harm to people, is it really love? I, I, I think that love has to be both like demonstrated in, in, from a space of love, but it also needs to be received as love. And if, it's, and if your patient's telling you, hey, I'm not feeling the love, <laughs> then I think that as nurses, we need to stop and say, hey, there's a disconnect here. What, what, what am I missing? And, and maybe it comes back to your previous question about how we become like self-reflective. You know, but I think, I think that nurses have to consider this idea that like, if you truly love your patient, you need to understand what that love looks like in order for them to receive it as love and kindness. Maybe that's a somewhat like abstract idea, but I think that that's, I think that's vital to this space. Right. Well, you're opening my eyes a little bit of something I hadn't considered before. And that is that you have to look at the love that's being received, not so much of whatever you are giving out as love or, or, um, or affirmation or whatever that might be. So I think it's a good point. Um, and then I want to do, I do want to talk about specifics a little bit. You've mentioned like, for example, using people's pronouns appropriately. Um, what are some things that nurses should just know going into those types of conversations? How do you bring that up? How do you naturally and, and bring up the conversation? You know, how would you like me to refer to you? You know, what are some of the kind of the cultural norms, um, that nurses should know, uh, about this kind of group of patients that they'll end up working yeah, with? Yeah. So, point? so when I walk into a situation, one thing I've learned, um, and let me, uh, maybe more specifically, when I walk into a patient interaction with someone I've never met before, and assuming that I have no information about them or very limited information, I don't. I try to not go in with any assumptions. They may look like a man, but I don't. I cannot assume that. They may look like they use she/her pronouns. I cannot assume that. You know, they may be sitting there, and they. I might. You know, my mind might think, "Oh, maybe they look straight." No, I cannot assume that. And so, first and foremost, is recognizing like assumptions are going to be really problematic when, especially when you're working in this space. And so I, I, I put all assumptions aside and I say, hi, you know, my name is, my name is Dr. Devin Jennings. I use he, him pronouns. It's really nice to meet you. What name would you like me to call you by? And what pronouns do you use? And then most patients will go ahead and just tell me, oh, my, my name is so-and-so and I use these pronouns. Some patients will look at me and say, well, my name's so-and-so, but what do you mean by pronouns? And most of the time that I'm like, okay, mm. I see that that conversation may not apply to you. So we're just going to move on. Uh, and you'll be, and, and you'll be almost that direct with them, you know, in that yeah, forefront. I think that, yeah, is yeah. That right? I think that it's, okay. I think we need to be direct and, and I think it's important to practice this, you know, outside of, patient interaction so it becomes slightly more natural but i've gotten into the space of just being say hi you know my name's dr devin jennings i use he him pronouns um it's really great to meet you you know what's your what what name would you prefer to me to call you by and what pronouns do you use um for queer people that moment right there the moment that you introduce yourself and say your own pronouns is one of the most profound things you can do as a nurse to establish a sense of um, of affirmation, a sense of safety, a sense of being queer affirming, is just recognizing the importance of pronouns in general and be able to say your own pronoun. 
um, that that's such a powerful moment, you know, and then I'll have open conversations with people. I'll say, you know, um, tell me, you know, so if we're doing like, um, like a history of, um, um, you know, like understanding sexual orientation or gender identity, I might say, well, how do you, how do you identify in terms of sexual orientation? And you, how do I, how do you identify in terms of gender? Um, you know, tell me about your, um, your sexual partners. Um, you know, you know, do, do you have, uh, have you had sexual relationships with men, women, both, uh, you know, and, and to have very honest, very straightforward, um, you know, conversations that don't feel like awkward, you know, because it would be really weird if I said, um, well, um, okay, this is awkward and, uh, you don't have to answer, you know, if you're, um, it's kind of a weird question, but, um, uh, you know, that's not <laughs> right. helping nobody. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. You know, yeah, just being honest and straightforward and confident and recognizing that it's a small thing to say, it's a small thing to ask, but if done so in the right way, that it can be an, a, a, one of the most beneficial things that you can do when working with a queer client. Yeah, no, I can totally imagine and, and see why that would be potentially helpful for those individuals. I mean, there's so many like, little things we do in society, like, Hey, how are you? But we didn't actually like listen yeah, to them type yeah. of thing. And I'll maybe, maybe these types of like pronoun questions can almost be something similar in the sense that they can be so natural that like, we almost forget that like we're even asking them type of thing, but they can still provide us with helpful Absolutely. information. Well, and then I do want to, as we're wrapping up here, I do want to connect our first conversation with the conversation we're having now. Do you ever find, um, I guess statistically, People that are from the queer community, they do, they are at higher risks for mental illnesses. Do you think you can maybe tell us why you think that might be? And then two, what we can do about that to, you know, solve the problem of uh, mental health and um, emotional affirmation with, with people in the queer community? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go there. So here's, here's the foundation of my belief and what I've seen. There is nothing inherent about being queer that leads to a worsening of mental health related outcomes. There's nothing about just being gay, just being lesbian, just being transgender, about being pansexual, bisexual, that makes you have an increased risk for being depressed or anxious or anything else. There's this concept called minority stress. Minority stress refers to acute and chronic stressors that people within a marginalized community experience uh, because of prejudice and discrimination that's found within a community. So minority stress might look like bullying, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, uh, violence, victimization, family rejection, faith rejection. These kinds of stressors that are experienced within a minority community, and specifically we're talking about the LGBTQ community, when experienced, can create some really intense psychological issues. These psychological issues are sometimes called pathways. So they include things like the feeling that one needs to hide their sexual orientation or gender identity, the feeling that, you know, uh, the development of internalized stigma or sometimes called internalized homophobia or internalized queerphobia or internalized transphobia, an internalized message that being queer is inherently bad and evil. 
um, anticipatory rejection, believing that people will reject you if you come out to them, um, feeling like you have no social support. Over time, chronic and acute stressors lead to the development of these kinds of psychological pathways. And over time, this then results in poor health outcomes, including worsening anxiety, worsening depression, um, higher suicidality, um, substance use disorders, um, delayed care for a meeting with a primary care doctor, um, decreased well-being, um, increased uh, you know, sexual risk-taking. It, it's profound how this, this concept of minority stress develops. But at the core of it is the idea. It, it has nothing to do with the queer person, their identity. Yeah. It has everything to do with the way that societies engage with queer people and begin to really shove these negative narratives at queer people. And that is profound. That is profound. Because what that means that is in order for us to decrease, for, like you mentioned, suicide rates amongst LGBTQ young people, the way that we decrease that is to, in, to, to really go to the root cause. Yes, you know, the, 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 the social structures and supports for queer youth are incredibly important, but to really make a lasting, impactful change is that we need to teach families and small communities and schools and religious communities the importance of affirming and loving and supporting queer people in where they're at. Wow. That bullying, rejection, discrimination, violence should have no place within a school, have, should have no place within a family, have no place within a religious community. Like that should not be there. If we can, if we can eliminate that, if we can just decrease that, we will significantly improve the mental health of LGBTQ people. Yeah. Well, I, like I get passionate about this, Ryan. No, I can, I can <laughs> tell, but I think it's great. And I especially love that you addressed the, the correlation versus causation thing head on. And I think you're right. That really asks society to step up and, um, and, and understanding that really demands that society and nurses, especially working in the care field, think more carefully about how they treat other people, um, in the way that they would like to be treated. And even more importantly, the patient would like to be treated so i really appreciate your thoughts that's really great devin well devin that's all that we that's all the questions that we have for you today again really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to talk to us even for a little bit longer than we were anticipating you had some really good things to say <laughs> i sure appreciate it thank you for having me i really like devin's statements about um listening more this can apply to patients, but also it can just apply to everyone in our lives, the elderly people we interact with, friends, family. Um, it's not just something that nurses can apply. Yeah, I think we all could do a better job listening to each other a little bit. I also like Devin's comment about leaving our biases at the door. I think one of the things that Devin's comments made me realize is that it doesn't actually matter if you agree or disagree with someone. As a professional, as a caretaker, treat the people in the way that would improve their life the way that their life is. You know, the interview made me think of the third area of Tanner's clinical judgment model, um, that of respond. It states that nurses should effectively act and communicate, then adjust treatments as necessary. 
Devin definitely understands this concept. Yeah, he was definitely really good at that. And I think our nurses are learning that concept as well. So because of that, we sent Donovan on the street to ask nursing students how they think like a nurse, especially in terms of responding. Let's take a listen. So I'm here with Lydia. How are you doing today? So good. How are you? I'm doing great. So I'm sure you know that the College of Nursing is implementing Tenor's clinical judgment model into your clinicals and into the program as a whole. So in terms of responding, how do you think like a nurse? When I think like a nurse, I try to provide care with input from patients as well as other healthcare members. And so an example of that is from clinicals just this last week. I had a patient whose IV was hurting her really bad. And so she told us that. She said the tubing is stinging and that spot just isn't great. And we adjusted it and were able to make it much more comfortable for her. Nice. That's an awesome example. Thank you. We're here with Kayla. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Donovan? I'm doing great. So in terms of responding, how do you think like a nurse now? Well, I try to adapt my patient care based upon my patient's response. And one example of this was when we were doing a depression screening, and it was kind of required for the um, the program. And we started talking to this patient, and she started really opening up with us about her life and certain aspects of her life. And so instead of just, you know, finishing the depression screening and getting out of the room, me and a couple other nursing students stayed with her and just chatted a little bit longer and tried to help her with issues uh, that she was dealing with. That's awesome. I feel like that's so important. So thank you for your response. Appreciate it. All right. Finally, I'm here with McKenna. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. So the same question to you. In terms of responding, how do you think like a nurse? Well, I want to utilize Team Steps principles in my communication with the healthcare team to deliver best patient care more than I have. Last week, I was had a rotation in the ER, and my nurse said that she had been working there for like 30 years, and she said we were going to give this certain medication a certain way, and it was different than what we've learned in nursing school. And she even used the words like, don't tell your no, you're a teacher, but we're going to do it this way. And I know it does sound a little weird, but um, I feel like I could have used team steps more in that regards to question that. Nice. That's a great example. Thank you. Thanks, Donovan. I really enjoyed what Lydia said about responding to that patient who had an uncomfortable IV. I remember we were practicing IVs once and someone gave me an IV and it hurt so bad. I can't imagine what it would be like to have an IV sticking in you for who knows how long and it just being really irritating. So props to Lydia for making that patient's life just a little bit better by responding. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. Don't forget to tune in next week. That's right. As you already know, we'll be out every Tuesday. Also, don't forget to check out our Instagram page and tell us who you want to hear from next semester. Have a good one. See you next week. See you next week.